Tyson and Recharge, I'm Tara, and I'm here to welcome you and give you some information to start off our gathering today. Hello to everyone here with us, whether you're watching live or joining us later in the week, and hello to any watch parties out there. Also, a special welcome for any guests with us for the very first time. We're thrilled that you're here. Over the next couple of minutes, I'll share some information that will help you navigate and enjoy your first visit with us. We're in a unique season of being mostly online with some in-person gatherings here and there. So we hope to meet you face-to-face -face very soon. But for today, as you visit online, we trust that you still feel at home here. You can learn more about us on our website if you have any more questions. For those that hear this info every week, stick with us because this may help you as well and there's always some new information. If you're gathering live on Sunday, we encourage you to check out the tabs right on the online platform. You can share your information with us, which will just help us follow up and get feedback from you. Also on the live platform, you can explore next steps and find previous messages. And if you call Centerway Home and would like an easy way to give, there's also a tab to do that. During the gathering, if you have questions or if you would like prayer, just request prayer and one of the hosts will answer you privately in a separate chat. If you're watching or listening later in the week, many of the things I just mentioned can happen through our website. If you'd like to connect with us after the gathering, if you have questions or feedback, if you have ideas or if you need prayer, please email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. Another way to connect throughout the week is by checking out our social media and accessing the resources on our website. If you visit the messages page, you'll find all of our messages, including ones just for kids. They'll sing some songs and hear a message just for them. They'll be learning from the same scripture text that we do. So if you have kids in your home, you'll be able to discuss the application question together, which is really great. Also on that page are resources related to the messages, like images to put on your devices, links to Spotify playlists for this specific series, and access to the Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals. If you'd like to receive the devotionals directly to your inbox, instead of going to the website, you can subscribe on the Next Steps page. Now before I wrap up, I want to again mention our next in-person gathering date. We love the opportunity to gather online each week, but it is really special to be in the same room together. So mark your calendar for Sunday, June 13th for our next in-person gathering. If you're new here, we are currently going through the Gospel of Mark. We actually started working through this book of the Bible way back in September, and we're continuing in part of chapter 12 today. This series is called Connecting the Dots. As we continue in our gathering, here's what to expect for the rest of the day. Kelly will be reading the scripture text for us, Claude will be communicating from the Bible, and then we'll close out the gathering with some ways to respond in worship. Right after that, you can join us live on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond through song. Now here's Kelly with the text for today. Good morning, Centerway. My name is Kelly McFarland, and I will be doing the scripture reading for today. Mark 12, 13 through 27. And they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came out and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. 
And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, they left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Hello and welcome. My name is Claude and my wife Meredith and I are the lead pastors here at Centerway Church. Really excited you have the opportunity to be with us as we continue in our Connecting the Dots series. Uh, the, today's title is actually Authority. And as you just heard, there's a, a big chunk of scripture that was read out of uh, chapter uh, 12 of Mark. And um, we're focusing on authority today. And the reality is I could share so many stories or moments uh, where where I just had issue with authority or uh, I felt like I had more authority than I really had. And the, the one thing that kind of comes to the forefront um, was one time when we were younger, uh, we were a bunch of kids and we had gotten out of school and we would go over to one of our friend's house and uh, we would swim in his pool after school from time to time. And he lived in a, a neighboring community and there was a group of us, we were all able to, to drive at this point. And so we would drive over to his home uh, from all different school districts and we're all just swimming and, and playing in his in-ground pool. And one of the things that was cool about his house is there was um, a roof that kind of jutted out over the pool. And so we started in conversation one of those times and uh, just asked, hey, have you ever jumped off the roof? He's like, oh yeah. He's like, absolutely. He's like, without my parents here, we can totally jump off the roof. And uh, so what a brilliant idea, right? So we all start into the house and his older sister is there and she's kind of realizing what's happening. She's like, you cannot, you can't jump off the roof into the pool. Somebody's going to get hurt. And he's like, yes, I can. Yes, I can. And so she's outside as we all trace past her and she's yelling up. She's like, I'm going to call mom and dad. Do not jump off the roof. And so here we are again, old enough to drive. And here is this like, this moment of complete immaturity, like the trump card that every child on the face of the earth has used at some point. He just looks down at his older sister and goes, you are not the boss of me. <laughs> we all started laughing and he jumps off the, the side of this roof and falls into the deep end of this pool. And we're just like, this is incredible. And so the next guy goes up and goes, you're not the boss of me either. And we all start laughing and he jumps off and like spins around and falls. Well, all of these people have jumped off of this roof before at this point, and I'm now coming up to the edge of the roof. And so I say the joking around line, you know, you're not my boss either. Now she's just furious. She's like, I hope you get hurt. I can't stand any of you. I'm telling mom and dad. And so here I go. I've never jumped off of this roof into this pool in particular. And I definitely do not recommend that if you are a teenager watching or an adult 
adult with aspirations. Don't jump off roofs into pools. It is a dumb idea. You can really, really get injured. Um, in this moment, I just do that jump and I'm looking down and it's funny when you're high enough, a large pool looks like it's way too small. And you start looking like, wait, am I gonna land in that? And as I'm getting closer, I'm like, I'm pretty close to the sidewalk. And then I started thinking, did I jump far enough out from the house? And I'm literally, all these things are just rushing through your mind. It's kind of time slows down. I'm getting closer and closer and closer. And I feel my shorts snag right on the edge of the pool and thank God I was just far enough to where it didn't actually catch. It just ripped the very edge of my shorts and I slid right down the side of the pool and it was deep enough that I went right down the edge and you could hear a pin drop. When I came up out of the water, everybody's just like frozen looking at me like, oh no, because they couldn't tell if I'd hit the back of my head on the sidewalk. And so they're like frozen, locked up and they're like, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't jump off the roof anymore. And it was just one of those moments where you're replaying everything and thinking, oh my gosh, thank God, nothing serious happened. It's so funny and interesting how we have those moments where we wanna push against authority until we realize that maybe that authority was right and we almost got hurt. The question I wanna ask as we move into the text this morning is this, why do we sometimes think the rules don't apply to us? Why do we sometimes think the rules don't apply to us? I can do whatever I want. You are not the boss of me. I think the answer to this question would be a little bit embarrassing if it wasn't for the reality that it's universal. We all sometimes think the rules don't apply to us because in those moments, we think we're in charge. I mean, we don't think that we're in charge in the sense that we make the rules. We think that we're in charge in the sense that we have the authority to decide what's best for us. I'm in charge. You're not the boss of me. Or at the very least, we should be in charge. We should have the right to make decisions for ourselves. You're not the boss of me. I feel like you could put that on recorder and play it all the time. Even if we don't say it as we get older, there's part of us that thinks it in the, the back of our mind when someone tries to power up or, or push their authority onto us. No one has to, to teach a child to have a will, you know, to have an opinion, to have a, a strong will. Now, I know that life and people affect how we express that, depending on how we were raised or in some cases how people have lorded authority over us. But it still exists in every single one of us. This idea that we have an opinion, that we have a will, that we want things to work out a specific way. Now, some are more vocal about their thoughts and opinions for sure, but the fact remains, we all have a will. We all have a will or an opinion on how we want things to go as humans. Our willingness to fight for that opinion or to lay it down is directly connected to authority, who we perceive to be the authority. So let me ask you, who in fact is the boss of you? Who's the boss of you? If we kind of switch that question, that statement a little bit, you're not the boss of me. Who is the boss of you? And you might say, well, no one's the boss of me. Well, that just means that you view yourself as your own boss. If you're really spiritual this morning, you might say, mm, I'll tell you who's the boss of me. It's God. God's the boss of me. <laughs> and that's a great answer. 
But you feel the tension when it seems like maybe God might be getting this wrong. If you've been a part of Christendom for any amount of time, you know what it's like to declare God the boss of your life, the leader of your life, and yet feel tension when it seems like things aren't playing out the way they should. Why do you feel that tension? Because there's this resident boss of yourself raging against this declaration that God is the boss of you. Now, if you're being lighthearted today as you listen to this, you might say something like, ah, you know, it'd be nice to say that God's the boss of me. But the reality is, if you're married, you might say, it's my spouse. They're the boss of me. And, uh, you know, that's a nice thought. But all it really means, if you really mean it, like, I know that there's some of you that are like, no, seriously, they're listening. They're watching. They're the boss of me. The fact is, if you make that statement even kidding or somewhat serious, all that it really means is that somewhere along the line, at some point, you've stopped vocalizing your opinion. It just means you've acquiesced. It doesn't mean that in your heart of hearts, they're actually the boss of you. It just means you've surrendered the battle in some ways. (laughs) So all right answers aside and all joking aside, as humans, we all function and live as the bosses of our own lives. Whether we say it or not, in our heart and mind, we have a will, we have an opinion. If you are a committed Christ follower, you know this reality all too well. And it's because the nature of living a gospel-centered life is daily dethroning yourself from the center of your life. You know that you're the boss of you. That's the problem, right? If you are a committed Christ follower, you understand the tension that I'm talking about. As humans, at best... We question authority. At worst, we rebel against authority. You're not the boss of me. Whether we say that as an adult or not, it's what we think in our hearts when we decide to rebel. Today's text is a text about the tension of viewing and maintaining authority. Let's pick up the story in verses 13 through 14. It says this, and they they sent to him, meaning sending to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Interesting friends uh, are kind of made in the midst of going against Jesus to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? Just a simple question we're just asking. (laughs) The tension here that's being articulated is a tension of authority. They're asking a question, excuse me, that even some of us ask today. Should a follower of Jesus obey the government? Do we surrender to the authority over us, Jesus? Now, the question then in the context of when it was written and when it was asked, was far more controversial and loaded than it is today. Although it still remains relevant, for sure. The question is about submitting to governmental authority. And it may be easier to answer when you live in a democracy or when the government's leanings are kind of in line with your views or with your beliefs. It's kind of easier to say, oh yeah, we should absolutely submit submit to the government. But What if the government's views and opinions and beliefs don't line up with your opinions, views, and beliefs? What do you do then? How is it that that Christians should function in the world we live in? But let's take it a step further. 
what if you live under a dictator? Or when Mark was written, under an emperor, an emperor that has taken control of your people and your land. What then? How do you function? What if, what if you live in a free democracy and the government asks or tells you to violate scripture? What do you do? How do you wrestle with that as a, as, as a Christian? Let's consider the text. Should we pay taxes? That's the question. Should we pay taxes? In essence, should we obey the government? In this scenario, in this situation, should we obey our oppressors? Let's look deeper into the context for a moment so we can understand the weight. Because I think sometimes in our way of life and our understanding of the world, uh, we can be somewhat lost in what it actually meant or what the tension really is. So the context is Jewish people here are completely occupied by Rome, as I've already mentioned. But the Jewish people don't actually recognize the legitimacy of this government. They don't view them as an actual legitimate government. On top of that, the Jewish people disagree with most of, if not all, of, Romans, of Rome's policies. So they are diametrically opposed. They're a community within a community. But they're literally being oppressed. The Romans have actually occupied and overthrown them. They're imposing their structure onto their lives. These people are asking, now their motive was devious, as we know and as we'll understand even more, but these people are asking a legitimate question. Do we feed the monster that is destroying us? Is that what we should do, Jesus? They ask a yes or no question, which, if you consider the context that I just laid out, this is a lose-lose answer for Jesus. I mean, if, if Jesus says, oh, you pay the taxes, well, then the Jewish people there will view him as a traitor. And they'll rebel and they'll be furious that Jesus has sided with the Romans, the oppressors, the abusers. On the other hand, if he says, don't pay the taxes, then he would most certainly be arrested by the Romans as an insurrectionist, someone that's trying to rile people up. And so there's this tension right here. What is Jesus going to say? How does he respond to such a loaded and direct question? And this is how he responds in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was their form of, of uh, income, their money system. And a denarius specifically was one day's wage. And so he goes, give me one. Now, why do you test me? This word test in the Greek, this is the same word used in Mark chapter 1 verse 13. That's in that place translated as tempted. And it's actually in that moment and in that verse in reference to when Satan tempted Jesus. And it means literally to have a motivation to destroy. So Jesus is saying, why are you trying to destroy me? Why are you trying to trap me? He sees the picture very clearly and he asks them a question. Of course, they don't respond. Get this. They view Jesus and the kingdom of God as a larger threat than Rome. Think about that for a second. Rome, this, this oppressor over them, and yet they're targeting Jesus and trying to trap him. And you have to understand that the Pharisees and the Herodians are diametrically opposed. 
The Pharisees, if we were uh, to, to try to put them in our terms today, the Pharisees would be viewed as ultra-conservatives and the Herodians would be viewed as ultra-liberals on extreme poles. And yet they come together to say, but we're all against Jesus. Why? Why is that? Why would these unlikely people become frenemies against Jesus? It's because the gospel takes humanity off the thrones of their own lives and levels the playing field. We're all sinners. Their way of life was being uprooted by the implications of the truth of the gospel, the implications of the kingdom of God. They couldn't maintain their authority. Their authority, their ability to sit on the thrones of their own lives was, was being uprooted and challenged by the very existence of Jesus. The only way to freedom, ironically, is to release control, to declare God the authority of our lives. But they're just not connecting the dots. They're not connecting the dots. And so Jesus asks for denarius. What's interesting and what you may not know about a denarius is that on one side is the bust, the, the face and chest of Tiberius Caesar with this inscription. When it's translated, it says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Wow, divine. Declaring Tiberius a godlike figure. Very typical in a Roman Empire. But on the other side of the coin is the image of Tiberius's mother. And on there, the, the words were translated meaning high priest. So on one side, Tiberius Caesar is saying, I am the, the son of the divine. I am God. And on the other side of the coin is his mother declaring, I'm the high priest. It's unbelievable. Everything about this coin is blasphemous to a Jew. Absolute blasphemy directly against God and everything they believe. Verses 16 through 17. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, This is a rather famous saying. You've probably heard it even if you haven't been in Christian circles or church circles. He says this, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. It's interesting. It's the only place in, uh, in Mark so far where they actually marvel at a response of Jesus. He silences them. He infuriates them. But this is the first place where it records. They just marvel at him like, wow, that is a really good answer. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. Here's what's subtle and yet profound if you're not paying attention. The people that are surrounding Jesus, that view him as a political leader and someone that is going to overthrow the Roman government in this moment right now, realize for the first time, Jesus is not an anarchist. It's an aha moment. Like, wait, what? There are people in the crowd that want to be like, throw the coin down. We shouldn't pay taxes. Now's the moment. Jesus doesn't do that. He puts things in proper place. Jesus, without relinquishing his authority, acknowledges the legitimacy of human government, even one that's blasphemous. That'll mess with your theology if you think that our mission and goal here as Christians, if you proclaim to be a Christ follower, is to somehow redeem the earth that we're in. 
But Jesus is making clear that that's not what this is all about. That, that we are on mission and that ultimately there will be a new heaven and new earth. And so the apostles, Paul and Peter, actually reaffirm this stance in Romans chapter 13, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and 1 Peter chapter 2. And the thing that's amazing about Peter and Paul is that they, at the time in which they wrote those letters or books, were dealing with Nero as emperor, who is widely believed to have been a lunatic by secular historians. So you can only imagine the, the tension that was going on. If, if you think things are difficult or secular uh, in today's day and age and what it is that we're dealing with the world, look into Rome. Investigate a little bit about Emperor Nero and how he ran things or what it looked like for, to be under the rule of Tiberius. It'll start to give you a perspective. Jesus was right in the thick. If there was ever a time to try to overthrow government and redeem the world that we live in, it would have been then. But Jesus is clarifying that's not the mission. Those in human authority don't change our mission. They don't change our mission. The world is, is fallen and people, sinners will do sinful things, but it doesn't change our mission if we could just be focused on the things that actually matter. Make no mistake, God has ordained the family, he's ordained the church, and he's ordained human government. As such, Christians have legitimate responsibilities to the government as long as those obligations don't interfere with our ability to honor and worship God. Connect the dots. What is Jesus saying? What is he actually saying? The coin has Caesar's image on it, which means it belongs to him. But get this, there's something way more profound happening when Jesus declares what he does. As humans, according to Genesis, and every Jewish person in the midst of this conversation would have known and been familiar with Genesis, it declares something about humanity that we are all bear, image bearers of God. As humans, we are all image, bearer of, image bearers of God. So when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's based on an image, then when he says, give to God what is rightfully his, he's looking at them saying, God requires your entire life. Give your life to God. Stop living as hypocrites. Don't try to position your authority. Don't try to insulate what it is that you have in order to lord your authority over others or to try to negotiate the way you want life to go. No, you are an image bearer of God. Submit to his authority. It's a profound moment that's taking place and it's why they marveled at him. The statement clarifies authority and puts everything in its proper, proper place. It is literally connecting some of the dots. If you're going to defy those in authority as a Christian, it must be because there's, they're demanding something clearly against Scripture. It, it must be unjust or immoral. They must be calling you to do that. We see moments like that in the New Testament where they tell, they tell the apostles to stop preaching the gospel. And they say, I have to obey God over man. But that's because it's in line with violating the mission that they're for. It has to be clearly contrary to the will of God, not simply inconvenient, not burdensome or worldly. We should expect the world to be worldly. No, you see, to be rebellious is to be the boss of our own lives, right? 
We're rebellious. We're not in some way sanctified or holy. No, we're saying, listen, I want my will. You can't tell me what to do. But if Jesus is your authority, then you're focused on the mission. That's the hill you die on. That's where you put your foot down and say no further. You see, it's his will, not yours, not mine. It's his will be done. We must be focused on the eternal, not the temporal. The the Pharisees and the Herodians are are addressing Jesus, but now as we move forward in Scripture, here comes the Sadducees, who Jesus addresses even more directly. You see, they don't believe in anything after death. And so they actually ask a theological question. If you've been raised in in a church environment at all, then you know that... Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe. <laughs> Sorry, this room is kind of erupting. If you've been in church at all, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If not, you're like, what are you talking about? But in either case, the Sadducees theology is, is more robust than I'm simplifying. But for the sake of the question that they bring to him, it's because they don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus has publicly, ta- publicly talked about his resurrection already. And so they're challenging him on this, probably in similar ways that they challenged the Pharisees just to drive them nuts. And maybe the Pharisees didn't have an answer for them. It has to do with the way that the, the law was set up to ensure that a, a woman who did not have uh, a son would be able to have the lineage of their father move forward. And, and so it's more than I can kind of explore for right now, except the point is to understand this is a theological question that they're trying to corner Jesus with to question the validity of a resurrection. And verse 24 says this, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Wow. I just, I love that statement. He's like, hey, I understand why you're wrong. It's because you don't actually understand God or the scriptures. You gotta be like, wow. The reason he is so direct with them is because they're manipulating scripture to justify their actions. Jesus powers up against the religious, against those that proclaim to be God followers. Why? Because they're misrepresenting God. They're they're religious leaders that are so caught up in their religious and political views and desire for freedom in the midst of those views that they're maintaining, they want to maintain their positions of authority. They want their comfort. And they aren't connecting the dots. And so Jesus is very direct with them. You don't understand what's happening. You don't understand the scriptures you proclaim, proclaim to know so well. It goes on in verses 26 through 27. It says, And for, for the dead being raised, you have not read, sorry, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So Jesus is making reference to a passage that they would be very familiar with. 
One of the other theological views of the Sadducees is that they believed that only the Pentateuch was the valid scripture. And the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus is actually speaking about a passage in Exodus. And so he's saying, listen, you know the part where Moses is talking to the burning bush, where God speaks to Moses? And they know exactly what he's talking about. And he quotes Exodus and and he says, listen, he actually says, I'm am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so if you look at the, the translation in, uh, in Hebrew, it's actually in the present tense. So the present, te- present tense is implied in that, um, in that lettering. And so because it's implied, Jesus is actually saying, why would he speak that he is the God of three men that are dead if They're not in some way alive. Although their physical lives are gone, they are still spiritually alive. That's why God speaks of them and implies in his communication that present tense, I am the God of Jacob. And so he, he says that, but more importantly than even the present tense communication, he's talking about a covenant that still exists. Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees about the importance of the mission of God and the kingdom of God being what they should be focused on. That's what matters, not how you can work out or negotiate an understanding of the resurrection, but rather what is it that God has challenged you to do and be as Christ followers or as God followers in that moment? Listen, this is kind of scary. It's kind of scary if you proclaim to be a Christ follower, and this is why. When you're concerned about keeping what you have, the temporal, whether that's a a position or a physical possessions, When you're concerned about that, you may be closed off to what God is trying to show you eternally. And it's scary because it's easy to do. It's why inside of us we proclaim, you're not the boss of me. I want this to work out the way I want it to work out. And so I want to make sure that I have everything that this world has to offer. In fact, God's going to give it to me and it's going to work out perfectly. And it's about my comfort and about the pieces I want to fit into it. And God is saying, you're not connecting the dots. You're not seeing the bigger picture. Who cares if you have all the things of this world and forfeit your own soul? What about the mission? What is it that I've called you to do? What is it that I've called you to be? Why are you so focused on the temporal instead of the eternal? You see, temporal perspective versus eternal perspective of authority will change everything. If this is about our authority in this earth and it has no eternal perspective, then we will settle for a lesser version of our lives at every turn. We will constantly shake our fist at the government and at others when we don't get our will, when we don't want things to work, when things aren't working out the way we want. But if we have an eternal perspective and we realize that history tells us that that has always been the game that humanity has played, but that God is still on the throne and we view him as the authority of our lives, all of a sudden we can experience some freedom and live for something larger than what we see with our eyes. And we can lean in to the mission and say, not my will, God, but yours. In fact, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to God, is there any way this cup can pass? Is there any way that I don't have to go to the cross? In his humanity in that moment. And then he says immediately, God, your will, not mine. And he models for us perfectly 
the tension that we're talking about here, this authority to say, listen, the end of the day, it's not even about my own life or health. This is about your will be done. God, this is your mission and I'm a part of something larger. So I I yield to your authority and I ask your will to be done in every area of my life. You see the big picture? I don't. I live in maybe 100, 120 years, but God, you have all of eternity. You hold the earth in your hands. Your will, not my will. That's what Jesus says. We can experience freedom from the sin and from the declaration that we have to be the authority of our own lives because Jesus said, your will, not mine, and went to a cross and died the death that you and I deserved so that we could experience the freedom by simply calling upon his name and say, Lord, would you come and be the leader of my life? I will remove myself from the authority position of my life and ask you to be the leader of my life. And I will do it daily because daily I rage against that machine and just want to say, my will, my will, my will, what I want. But the gospel tells us, no, this is not about positional authority. It's not about what I want. It's about something greater, something bigger, something eternal. An eternal perspective allows us to be able to lay down the temporal. Say, okay, you've got it. All that I have, I'm simply a steward of. Thankful for my health. Thankful for the provision that you've blessed me with. And so so use it however you view that I should use it, God. Just let your will be done. So this brings us to the point where we say, okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with it? If, If what we want to say is I'm the boss, you're not the boss of me, and I'm the boss of my own life. What do we do with the reality that we have to have an eternal perspective? It requires something of us. And this is what it requires. I want to challenge you to consider this question. What right is God asking me to lay down so I can serve others? What right is God asking me to lay down so I can serve others? Don't like that. Especially, and I know that there's people that that listen and watch that aren't from America, but if you are an American citizen, if you are a U.S. citizen, I should say, if you're a U.S. citizen... We don't want to lay down any rights. What are you talking about? You're not the boss of me. (laughs) But the kingdom of God is contrary to the system of this world. And so what right is God asking me to lay down so that I can serve others? Maybe it begins today with the right that you have to be the boss of your own life. Maybe it means laying down that right and asking Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. So today, if you have not come into relationship with Jesus, it doesn't have to be some complex, perfect prayer. It's as simple as saying, God, I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. In fact, if you want to pray that prayer, or if you are praying that prayer right now, wherever you find yourself, if you're joining us live, we'd love for you to, to click request prayer so that it'll put a private you in a private chat with one of our hosts and we can talk to you about the next steps of the decision you just made. If you're watching or listening to this later, you can reach out to us through our website or via email, and we can talk to you about those next steps. We'd love to have the conversation as you navigate what it looks like to put God the center of your life and on the throne room that he deserves. For others of us that have crossed that line of salvation already, what does it look like to to say, okay, I have the right to my time, right? You have the, you have the right to, to your time, and yet what does it look like to maybe lay down your time to, to live on mission? 
I know people that have taken vacations at work in order to engage in ministry. I'm not saying that it has to be anything extreme like that, but what, what does it look like? Have you wrestled with the idea of what it looks like to lay down your right to specific things, to just hear what God has to speak to you? What about the right you have to, to your finances? I mean, you've worked hard for that. But maybe God's asking you to give. And I don't mean to, to center away. I'm not trying to money grab or anything like that. I, I, I'm not. I'm talking about living on mission to another organization, to another proven, valid, gospel-centered organization to just say, you know what? I have a right to keep these. I have a right to save this. But what does it look like for me to live open-handed as a steward? What does it look like for me to lay down the right to things so that I can serve others adequately? There's several implications, and I want to challenge you to wrestle with it because it makes us uncomfortable. It went right against the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And I want to submit to you that it goes right against the way we live our lives as humans as well. So let's consider what the text requires of us today. Let me pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, we come before you just admitting our propensity to declare ourselves the boss of our own lives. Father, I pray that you would that you would help us realize what it looks like to live on mission, that we would see the life of Christ, the truth of the gospel, and the implications in our lives, that we would simply open our hearts and minds, just ask you to reveal to us what it is that, that you're calling us to lay down so that we can serve others, so we can be a part of the redemptive story of others that you've put in our sphere of influence. We declare ourselves available, and we declare your will be done. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen excited to be with you again next week as we continue in our series, Connecting the Dots. Wow, that was an incredible message with a lot to process throughout the week. Don't let this be the last time you consider the text or the application. Take time this week to apply it to your life. We have the opportunity to, like Jesus, empty ourselves, put aside our rights, and serve others. What an incredible way to offer worship to God this week. We always say there are many ways to worship, and it's so true. One of the ways that we get to worship together is through singing. And if you're gathered live, we're about to do just that. If you are not with us live, you can find the songs we're about to sing on Spotify. Just search Centerway Church and look for our Connecting the Dots playlist. You can also look for the video that will be posted on our Facebook page. For those gathered live on the online platform, we'll see you on Facebook or Instagram in just a few minutes.